0: Good afternoon, almost. We are here discussing Pirkei Avos, and today we're going to do a little bit of a exploration of a very famous teaching that actually appears in Tractate Sanhedrin at the beginning of chapter 11. Uh, Tractate Sanhedrin means the tractate that deals with the law of the court system. Among the laws of the court systems are capital crimes, And so therefore, in Tractate Sanhedrin, (coughs) you have several chapters that are devoted to those laws, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. (coughs) Chapter 11 talks about what happens after execution or what happens after death. And that's why the chapter begins with all the Jews have a share in the world to come. So for some reason, the rabbis saw fit that this should be sort of an introductory paragraph to every every chapter of Mishnah in Ethics of Our Fathers and Pirkei Avos. So, what I wanted to do now is just discuss this teaching a little bit, as well as its correlation to Avos. So, the teaching says, "All Israel has to them a share in the world to come." It's a major, major packed statement. Uh, as a proof to the truth of this dictum, the sages quote a sentence from Yeshaya, chapter 60, sentence 21, it says, and your nation is all righteous, for posterity, in other words, for forever, they will inherit existence, that's uh, a way to understand the meaning of the word, the land, that means they will forever exist in the land, whatever the land means. are <inaudible> matai they are a branch of my plantings, ma'aseyadai, <inaudible> my handiwork, or the work of my hands, er, <inaudible> in which to take pride. So first, let's discuss on a very simple level, what does that sentence mean? It means that the people, the Jewish people, because that's the context of that sentence, your nation, meaning you Jewish nation, are all righteous. They have an existence that is infinite forever. And that these people are a branch of the plantings of Hashem that are the, the, the work of Hashem's hands. And Hashem takes pride in these Jewish people. So, so, so much to discuss. First of all, what does it mean, olam haba? Let's just do that. So olam haba means the world that is not yet here, the world that is to come. That means to a certain extent it doesn't exist. And so that's itself a very interesting philosophic point. It's not so much that there is already in existence a different world uh, in which the future will be. It is very likely actually referring to a future world that which Hashem will create that is yet to arrive. Uh, in Yeshaya, we do have other, um, just give me one second. So there is another sentence in Yeshaya that talks about the eventuality of Hashem creating a new heaven and earth. And so it seems that this sentence is saying that in the future, the Jewish people will experience that forever. In addition to that, we have this concept of a chilek. A chilek means a portion, which means that every Jew has a share in that. Also, it seems to not be dependent on anything other than the fact that the person is a Israel. So the idea is that... um, It seems that by virtue of being born a Jew, a person um, is able to merit a forever existence. Now, this is an astonishing concept because basically it means that without ever doing any mitzvot, it's possible for a Jew to have a share in the world to come. In fact, uh, that is how we hold. Uh, that is what we think. And it's for this reason uh, that I think uh, in the Midrash, when... Amram in Egypt decided to separate from his wife and his daughter Miriam said to him, look, it's bad enough that Pharaoh is killing the boys uh, that will be born, but you're preventing even the girls from being born. So what you're doing is worse than Pharaoh. That's what Miriam said to Amram. And apparently a second argument that she presented is, and by the way, at least a child who is born to a Jew has a share in the world to come. But if they're never born, so they're not having a share in the world to come. So what you're doing is way worse than what power is doing. And truthfully, that argument is so persuasive, it makes us wonder how Amram, who was considered the Gadol hador, could possibly make such an error in judgment. Be that as it may, the sum total conclusion pertaining to us today is that a baby boy or girl, God forbid, that is a Jew that is born and dies, uh, you know, immediately or soon after, is considered to have a share in the world to come. So what is that all about? Why would such a thing be? And the short answer is that the Jewish people share a national identity based on our forefathers and based on the covenantal relationship that we have with Hashem from the giving of the Torah to the circumcision that we perform. All of that is part of a Jewish national identity. Every person is part of that national Jewish identity. And that entity, definitely has a future and a share in the world to come. And therefore everyone that has a connection to that entity is automatically given a seat in the stadium. Every Jew has a share in the world to come. Now that's the mechanics, but on a a kind of a more um, profound and meaningful level, the idea that Hashem created a world in which he takes pride means that the fact that Hashem seeks to have a relationship with a human being, and the fact that that human being sees itself as being a partner in that relationship with Hashem is something that is a tremendous source of pride for Hashem. And it's something incredibly elevating and edifying for the Jew, for that person that sees themselves as a part of that relationship. Now, what's absolutely essential is that this person that's in a relationship with Hashem needs to be a person that works on refining themselves. Now, a baby doesn't have free choice. So obviously, there's a certain level of natural refinement that a baby has. We talk about the innocence of the baby. You can see how, how it takes time for a person to become jaded, a person to become marred and negatively affected by their own actions. So there's a a, a real truth to the fact that babies who have not yet practiced negative free choice have a more seemingly pure and even holy um, beingness. But the idea that Hashem takes pride in this relationship is in itself part of what necessitates the character development that is being promoted and taught to us through the ethics of our fathers, right? The whole notion that we need to work on our integral selves and all the different things that we've already been discussing uh, recently about the power of the, the uh, mitzvot to purify and the way to, and to relate to other people with you know uh, a, a, a happy countenance and to make Torah part and parcel of a person's life and that a person can't just live for their own self, they'd have to live to be a benefit to others. All these are things that really cultivate a person into being the type of person that can have a proper infinite relationship with Hashem. And the fact that on top of all that, we were born from three major world figures that developed themselves to such tremendous levels of perfection and that from them we inherit a certain spiritual, emotional, mental DNA that predisposes us to this type of thing, this type of uh, self-development is also why I think the rabbis are putting this teaching here in Ethics of Our Fathers. And on top of that is the idea that in every generation, the rabbis of the generation really need to become the fathers of the Jewish people of that generation, and they really need to help every Jew learn the art of self-development and and working on one's internal self in order to um, make sure that what they're doing is refining themselves to be able to have this type of ongoing and ultimately uh, infinite relationship with Hashem. So that's the way I would discuss uh, the purpose of. The reason that this paragraph is always seen as an introduction to Perkyados. One last point that I want to raise is that the difference, therefore, based on this teaching, between the Jew and the non-Jew is that the Jew is guaranteed this future existence based on their heritage, based on their spiritual and you know otherwise uh, discussed already DNA. The fact that the Jew does not actively choose to reject their essence their identity and ultimately in the perfect world they live long and are able to even achieve greater heights by the work that they do to self perfect themselves in this world all of that is with the teachings of pirkei avos but having parents uh, that you know we have been privileged to have great ancestors like we've been privileged to have and then it's a so to speak given that the Jew will inherit an infinite future. The non-Jew, on the other hand, does not have that in his DNA. And though the non-Jew is more than welcome and definitely also should have a relationship with God, it's not the same infinite transformational kind of relationship that the Jew automatically is born into and is also yes supposed to pursue and choose and everything else. And therefore the non-Jew does not have automatically a share in the world to come but he can, yes, earn a share in the world to come, which is what the early commentaries do when they explain this Mishnah. They explain that this Mishnah itself goes on to list examples of people who lose their share in the world to come. One of the examples that the Mishnah mentions is 'um. Bil'am. Bil'am is definitely not a Jew. So why are we talking about Bil'am losing a share in the world to come? Because really he could have had a share in the world to come, and non-Jews in general can have, it's just not an automatic guarantee that they will have. Let's do questions or comments now on this. Yes, Ethan. Can a Jew lose their share in the world to come? Yeah, so the Mishnah that gives other examples of Jews who lo- lost their share in the world to come. This, the, the, in other words, this is the opening phrase of that Mishnah. Then the Mishnah says there were four kings and, and uh, also regular people that lost their share and it gives specific examples.
1: How can we know that as a human? How can we know if we, let's say, individually like, yeah. losing? Like or... You, you say we... that some have been identified that they are losing their share. How can we... How can they know that? Yeah, how, how do we okay. lose that fate? <laughs> or how do we avoid that fate? Ah, is that... Yeah, so... The... No, that was not the question, but it's okay. You can... Solve. It's how can you you... How can you find out when you're losing what's, your what's, share? What's the proof?
0: What's the proof that those people lost their share? Yeah, I think that that Reuben is saying. Listen, I really want to know if I have a share or not. How do I know?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean me or if you. Yeah. I mean, we said that those people I, have I been identified that they lost it. How you know? Yeah. How so, oh, so meaning okay. It. How, how do the rabbis know that certain people lost it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, but if you want to ask me about you, you can call me after. No, I'm kidding. I, I have no.
1: Yeah. Uh, I still have a. I'm sure. I hope you I can too, change the fate by my actions. Still, no matter what. <laughs> or, um. Uh, the
0: look. We all have that question in general, personally. I'm, I'm going to build that on your question. Like you know, just go through a couple steps. We all have that question about ourselves. How does God really look at us? How do we know if we're doing well? Are we making it? Or are we not making it? And one of the things that I think actually this Mishnah teaches us, uh, the one that we we started last week, is that one of the best ways to know that you're doing well is if people are genuinely happy with you. People, people, other people like you. If you're if you're doing well among your fellow men, that's generally a great indicator of being doing well with Hashem. That's number one. Uh, number two is look we, we it's kind of good not to know so that we continue you know trying to make sure that we are right number three is that the mission does talk about very specific examples of, of, of sins you know than you know a um, um, that prevent a person so like an example uh, you know that, that that is well known that people wonder about and talk about is committing suicide Uh, Now, it's important to understand that uh, most cases of suicide that you hear about are generally unstable people, mentally, um, literally, probably crazy, um, or they're in such emotional turmoil and pain that they really can't uh, suffer uh, their existence anymore, even though it's still the wrong thing to do. That's very different than a person choosing to commit suicide as an act of rejecting God's gift of life. In other words, what the Talmud probably means in all likelihood that a person commits suicide doesn't have a share is when what he's trying to do is specifically throw God's gift back in his face saying, I reject you. I reject the gift of life. I want to have nothing to do with existence. Okay. That that type of person might lose a share in the world to come or probably would. Uh, But most cases that you ever hear about are not that at all. It's just people can't stand the pain of their own existence. A classic example, of course, being euthanasia, uh, which would be, you know, hastening uh, a very, you know, know, hastening a death for, you know, a person who's experiencing uh, a really difficult, uh, painful life. And then lastly, we probably shouldn't think too much about if other people have a share in the world to come or not, and the way that the rabbis know what they know is based on deriving certain things from sentences, and they're trying to give us insight and the types of things to avoid uh, in order to, uh, you know, like Ethan said, uh, not fall into that trap. The Rambam does talk about it, uh, you know, very explicitly in cases. Another time we can go into that further, but that's uh, the nutshell response. Is that
1: adequate, Ruben? Yeah. Okay. But my yeah, I mean, it was not necessarily my question was not about us. Was more about when you were referring of the fact that they were some people they were identified mm-hmm. of not. Getting their share, uh, there in in the in in the other um, mm-hmm. life. That how did we know that? You know because um, you only know your fate after you pass away.
0: Yeah. So the rabbis basically know things from the Torah, and on an even deeper level than that, my father actually explains that just like the rabbis decide. Um, you know, what constitutes a violation of Shabbos? Yeah, Rabbi, okay, so decide no, what, what constitutes uh, being uh, an earner of a share or a loser of a share in the world to come? Okay. It's basically so the, was... through the learning of Torah, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Okay. Anyone else? Good with this? Okay, so let's just now... Um, let me just mention one more thing, and then and then that will be it for Pirkei then We'll do the Dvar There's a very interesting word that the teaching over here uses. is called the word Yesh. Okay, all Jews Yesh lahem chayla. There is to them a share. So this Hebrew word Yesh is fascinating. First of all, we translate it as there is. Now, that's another way of saying exists. The last of the mishnah teachings in the oral law talks about the fact that righteous people just like we're saying over here righteous people uh, i guess i should just elaborate on righteous people for a second obviously we don't mean people who never sinned even people who have sinned can still be considered righteous right let's just put that out there because to say that all jewish people never sinned, well that's just a fantasy that can't be true so the idea is that people that are the jewish people hope hopefully ultimately conclude their lives in righteousness by regretting their bad deeds and ultimately uh, earning a status of being righteous so the last mishnah in all of mishnayus the last teaching says that all righteous people will in the future inherit 310 worlds and the phrase that the 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 mishnah teaches based on the sentence is (laughs) l'hancheo To bequeath to the people that love me yesh and yesh is numerically 310 yud shin so my contention is that the concept of 310 worlds is the ultimate way of expressing experiencing existence and even though i have no idea what it means to inherit 300 worlds i imagine it's something much more marvelous than any marvel uh, writer of fiction has uh, conceived of uh, trying to describe and the idea of 310 worlds is depicted in the word yesh because yesh means there is and ultimately because God created things exist and we get the gift of experiencing those things. Now here's another interesting point is that in the Megillah Aster, and indeed we quote this sentence in Havdallah every week we say, that the Jewish people expe- experienced at the time of Purim, light, aura, simcha, joy, sason, rejoicing, yikar, glory. And so the Talmud talks about what those four things stand for. When it comes to the word yikar, the Talmud says that it actually stands for tefillin. Tefillin are described as the glory of a person. So what are tefillin? We put those boxes on our hand and our head. And wouldn't you know that the word yikar is also numerically 310. Okay, yut kuf resh is 310. So it seems to me that the way to describe the true dignity and glory of a human being is the fact that God really is granting this infinite experience of existence. And the tefillin is a microcosm representation of the dignified, elevated human experience, and so I would therefore say that uh, you know those of us that thank God are privileged to put on tefillin, and uh, we have an obligation to put on tefillin every day. What we should really be understanding is that it's not just like a mitzvah; we have to do this, we have to do that. It's really to give us a taste of this ultimate, infinite future of the 310 worlds. So it's a time when we can hopefully purify mind and body, which. That's the obligation wearing tefillin. A person is not allowed to wear their tefillin if their bodies are not clean. And a person is always supposed to have the tefillin on their mind when they're wearing tefillin. It's supposed to be uh, very much what we are meditating on. And uh, this is a tremendous way of God giving us here in this mundane world a little bit of a taste of the infinite future of really... Experiencing the dignity of the human being, and in fact, in the words of the rabbis, in the future, the righteous people are going to sit around with their crowns on their heads. And it's filling is like, uh, like a crown. I would, I would posit. So there's a lot more to be said on that, but I think it's interesting to think about, you know, the ultimate future and how even here we have a sort of a way of stepping into some of that feeling. Any questions or comments on that?
1: Yes, Joseph. Is it uh, yesh related to Yosher? Is the same part with Yosher?
0: Yeah, it does share the Yud and the Shin, and it probably is uh, related. Yashare, Israel, Yesh, Resh, Resh. There probably is uh, a lot more that is uh, able to be related to that. I could give you a flip side of Yesh or of Yakar, and the flip side of Yesh or existence or of Yakar is probably the word carry which always refers to semen that went to waste.
1: <clears throat>
0: and that's the flip side, the same exact letters because the opposite of creating infinite existence and future is w- wasting or squandering the potential of that. And that's what we were just talking about before. And in fact, right before I came here, um, the Talmud that I was learning in, in gittin page six B talks about specifically about Jews that would leave Bavel, to go travel to Israel and stay for very long periods of time in Israel. And one of the rabbis in the Talmud rebukes those people because they're leaving their wives. They're not home for long periods of time. And because of that, they're preventing the birth of children. And therefore, the rabbi was rebuking them for staying away for these long periods of time from their wives, because that is a terrible thing to do. And the Talmud even compares staying away for a long time and not you know being involved in producing children. the Talmud compares that to people who care less about their children and actually sell their children into what we have today as the slave or the sex slave trade, or to sell them for money to buy alcohol and, and drinks. The Talmud compares that. says the people who don't involve themselves with their wives properly and having children, are compared to the people that literally sell their children for money for, for ridiculous reasons and, and horrible things. Very, very fascinating. So that's the, the flip side of the dignity, right? Of the human being, which would be to produce children and grandchildren, people of substance and dignity and importance. Flip side of that's people who don't have children or God forbid, even uh, worse than that. Okay, we'll stop there for the Pierre Oblos today.